Hello and welcome back to The Purpose of Wealth, Mutual Trust's podcast on the secrets to protecting and growing intergenerational wealth. I'm Narelle Hooper, your host. So you've invested blood, sweat, tears and hard-earned cash into your business, but as much as things might be going well, you never know what's around the corner. This might sound a bit macabre, but I'm thinking about, well, if you died today, (laughs) what would this look like? How would this work? Nothing is certain except death and taxes. You probably heard that quote. It was Benjamin Franklin back in the 1780s. A couple of centuries and a bit later, it turns out there's a multitude of other complicated twists in life you might have to deal with as well. All the D words, divorce, de factos, family dynamics, mental decline, and the list goes on. And this brings with it a bunch of legal, financial and personal considerations which all come under the heading succession planning. Basically, that's making sure your s*** is sorted for things that might happen and the one thing we all know definitely will happen. The best thing is when you can sit down with a family when that awful event happens. There's no surprises. They know exactly what's going to happen and how it's all going to work. And they've got a really clear idea about what they wanted. So if you sat down and started to think and talk things through, well, if you haven't, no worries. We're going to do that right now. And we'll try to keep it as straightforward as possible and not get too bogged down in the legal terminology. With us to help us through is Eliza Newson, the Director of Trustee Services with Mutual Trust in Melbourne. Hello, Eliza. Hi, Narelle. How would you describe what you do? Would you say you're like a will whisperer? (laughs) will whisper. I describe it as it's the life cycle of a client. The beginning of the work that I do is sitting down with clients and families and putting in place a plan for them, talking about what their wishes are, what their worries are as well. What are the things that keep them awake at night thinking about the next generation and how that wealth transfers to them and really unpacking and understanding how their wealth is structured. Once we've done that, put in place that plan, it's then a matter of refining that over time and adjusting it over time as things change and develop as they always do. And the other part of the practice is then putting those plans into effect. When a client has lost capacity to make decisions for themselves and we see the powers of attorney coming into effect then, or quite sadly, when they pass away. And then it's about really being there to help put in place those plans and execute those plans alongside the family for their benefit. So we sort of follow the the client through that life cycle and then on with the next generation as well when that wealth transfer has happened. We'll dive into that in a little more detail in just a moment. So if I could ask you, what exactly is succession planning and what areas does it cover? It, It is more than a will, right? That's right. A lot of people will immediately think of just doing a will. And if I've just done a will, then they can tick that one off their list as having been completed and and everything's in place. The reality is that life is getting far more complicated, whether that be through different types of wealth structures. Superannuation's probably been one of the most complicating advancements in terms of wealth in the last few decades. And what that requires is a greater degree of planning and consideration than simply just making sure that you've got a will in place. We use the word succession planning as an umbrella term. It will cover both the legal documents that are required in order to give effect to whatever it may be. And so that could be a will. It will also be powers of attorney. There are other legal documents that probably do need to be put in place to make sure that 
what needs to happen can actually functionally happen. But above all of that is really having a clear idea about what's important for a particular family and making sure that there is an understanding of that, that there is a plan for that as well. Often we see clients who will want to provide for the education of their grandchildren. They might do that during their lifetime, but they might also want to be able to do that when they've passed away. We would look at having sort of a lifetime plan for that, and that might be something like putting in place a discretionary trust and putting money into that trust that can then distribute money out for the education of those grandchildren. It just might be grandpa and grandma funding those education expenses directly. We then need to make sure that that's covered off in the will in case grandma and grandpa pass away while those kids are still being educated. In terms of legal documentation, that might be, you know, a few lines in a will. That might be a trust that's been set up and money sitting inside it. But what's really important to make that a successful funding of education is a really clear understanding within the family. What is that for? What kind of education are we funding? Is it public or private school? If it's private school, what kind of private school? Is it prep to year 12, university? So when you sort of start asking those sorts of questions, you can really get down to what grandma and grandpa actually intend the money to be for, which could be something completely different to what their children and the parents of those grandchildren imagine it might be. And so we then put in place maybe an education policy or a letter of wishes that really goes into that detail about what those funds are used for. Whilst it's not a legal document necessarily, it's not binding, but that is a core part of that overall succession plan to make sure that that distribution of wealth for that purpose is successful. Are there familiar themes and stories that you hear from the families that you work with? And you've talked about wishes and worries, the things that keep them awake at night. While every family is different, there are certainly common themes. We often hear parents worried about conflict within the family or even just tension, really, when they aren't there to guide and steer the ship, if you like. The kids, if they are working together in managing that family wealth, how are they going to get along? How well are they going to be able to make decisions together, particularly when you're talking about money and financial decisions? I think there's a dawning realisation for people that as we are living longer, And as a result of that, there's a greater chance that in the years before you pass, you may not have capacity to make decisions for yourself any longer. And that mental decline or the cognitive decline is a real worry for people and for them imagining what those final years will look like and what care they will need, how much it will cost, aged care is rather expensive, and who in the family is going to be there to step in make those decisions and coordinate things to make sure that, you know, mum and dad are being looked after. People are a bit more open about having those discussions as difficult as it is to make sure that it's it's sort of clear what people's wishes are for that stage in their life and have a plan around that. So what clients will think about is if I leave this capital to my children, they're fairly well-established they're doing okay already, but they'll be then the custodians for that for the next generation of those grandchildren. And, you know, sort of questions that get asked and worries are how well will they do that? 
how well would they do that job of being custodians to make sure that that capital is there for the next generation and those grandchildren. And then hopefully the generation after that and those grandchildren's then children. Oh, gosh. So essentially that's hoping or figuring out ways that capital and the lineage and legacy can be passed on with minimal conflict and ensuring that your wishes and values are honoured. That's the tension point, is that right? That is right, particularly when you might already have a sense that the values are different, particularly around spending money and investing money and budgets and things like that, household budgets, how much each family might spend. There's a tension there with also people not wanting to rule from the grave. It's a bit hard. Yeah, well, it is. <laughs> we haven't figured that one out yet. Eliza, you must have heard some horror stories over the years. Any examples you can share? Many, Narelle, many. <laughs> I had a client who ran his own business, a very, very successful business. He'd built it from the ground up on his own over many decades. As often happens, because he started out very, very small, the legal structures around that business and how it operated were very basic and it didn't change as his business grew and developed. And essentially when he passed away, which was unexpected, even though he did have a will in place, he was the sole director and shareholder of the company that ran the business. And because all that ownership and control was solely with him, when he died, the executor wasn't in a position or wasn't able to take control of that company straight away. And that's because there's always a gap, a sort of a holding pattern, if you like, when somebody passes away that while the executor goes and obtains the grant of probate from the court, the executor can't control assets, can't take ownership of them and direct them. Everything's frozen pretty much. That's exactly right. It can be a really tricky time while those assets are frozen. People can find themselves very cash poor if the deceased had the majority of the cash in their personal name. He can't get access to it. But in this particular case, because it was all with him as the sole director and shareholder of the company, essentially nobody could do anything. And so he had access to all the bank accounts for the business. He controlled all of that. And the bank wouldn't accept the authority of anybody else involved with the business until the executor got probate. So that got really difficult in terms of paying wages and paying bills for the business and things like that. So if I'm to mitigate the risk of that situation happening, if I'm coming to get advice from you about this, what's the first item on the agenda? When I first sit down with a client, I'm, this might sound a bit macabre, but I'm thinking about, well, if you died today, <laughs> what, what would this look like? How would this work from a very practical and functional perspective? Pretty good question. <laughs> I'm not quite as blunt like that with those clients, but... <laughs> Worked <it's>, for me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think about, well, if you've got a business, how does that keep operating? How does, if you've got significant amount of wealth in one particular structure, then like a trust or a company, or it might be superannuation, we start thinking about who controls that when you're gone and how easy is it going to be for that person to assume control of that structure so that you don't lose that time. We call it a fire drill where we put ourselves in that situation. If this were today, how would this operate? What would that look like? Where are the blockages? Where are the issues that we might face? And how can we then fix things now so that that doesn't happen when the time actually comes? Why is personalised advice that relates to the family and their circumstances so much more important than just leaving a will? Well, every family is different. 
whilst a lot of clients that we deal with, you know, might have a similar sort of wealth structure in that there'll be a house and a super fund, maybe a trust, maybe a company. And there's, there's a fair degree of consistency across those structures. So the way you approach those might be quite similar from family to family, but where things can be vastly different is it's those family dynamics, who the people are and the values that they will have around providing for the next generation and that transfer of wealth and how that takes place. And it is that how where we spend a lot of time and effort thinking because the very obvious situation is that in quite a straightforward example, mum and dad come in to see us and they'll broadly want to say, well, if I die, everything passes to my spouse. But if we're both gone, then it just goes to the kids equally. And that's a very common approach. And you might walk into some law firms and they would say, fabulous, I'll draft you a will that just says that. Issue an invoice, move on, job's done. But the question is really how? How does that happen? What is the most effective, efficient, tax advantageous way of leaving everything to the surviving spouse first and then when they're both gone, passing it to the kids? There's more than one way to transfer that wealth to the next generation. And so we spend a lot of time talking through and advising on the how of that process. We're going to dive into that. In the research from the University of Adelaide report, families cited four main areas that the wealth transfer failed. And these are lack of communication, failure to prepare the rising generation or the heirs, a lack of clarity of purpose for the wealth, and the importance of getting good advice, or the failure in that case to get good advice. How does that resonate with you when you're dealing with clients? I can think of examples where I've seen each one of those four reasons at play and having a significant impact on why there have been issues or or why it's failed. I think if I start with the last one first, that not getting good advice, we often see families with very, very complex structures and significant wealth who haven't had the right advisor haven't had someone who specialises in this area and spends every day of every week working in this area. They might do this a little bit on the side of everything else that they do. And without that in-depth experience and knowledge in this area, those advisors are not providing the level of comprehensive advice that's really required for a complex family estate. Clients may not realise that the lawyer they're dealing with just doesn't have the depth of experience and knowledge that's required in order to develop a good plan. We come across that regularly. Part of the work we do is then working with the clients to show you've got a very simple will, but it's not sufficient. It doesn't do all these other things that really need to be put in place. Yeah, and it doesn't keep the lights on or the wages being paid in the event of your untimely parting. What are some questions and considerations that current gen and future gen family members should have on that then? It's about having a conversation with mum and dad about perhaps what they have put in place. That can feel like a really awkward thing to do though. You know, you don't necessarily want to be seen or for an inference to be made that you're after the money or you, you know, what's what's in the will, mum? Those sorts of things. So it's a delicate conversation and it needs to be approached in the right way. But I think it is really important that whether it's the kids or whether it's the parents, that someone is starting that conversation as a family about what is the plan? What have you done? Let's have a discussion about that. And the way we encourage 
families to do this is to share what is the high level plan. It's not about distributing legal documents around the table. It's about just being able to explain very simply what the plan is for the next generation. We often facilitate those conversations with the families, which can make it a bit easier that you've got someone independent coming in and having explaining that to the family and fielding questions. But what it does is provide, I think, comfort and clarity for all concerned that firstly, there is something in place and that it's comprehensive. It does what it needs to do. But also, when people don't know what's coming, they don't know what's going to happen, all sorts of funny ideas and crazy thoughts people can have and start worrying about, is it going to be equal if there's a family business or a farm? There can often be lots of concerns about who's going to get that, who benefits from that, and do we all get an equal share? And so when there's that lack of information, people will make up their own story. And that story could be right or it could be very, very wrong and create a lot of drama where there doesn't need to be any. And is that where that clarity of purpose of this is the purpose of our wealth and that conversation comes into being? It is. That actually probably comes first in the conversation. And we would hope that families already have an idea about what that is and have discussed it and are living and breathing that already as a family because the purpose of wealth is not necessarily about what happens to it when you die. It's also about how you use it while you're alive and the lifetime giving and the lifetime spending. That really comes first and then ideally following that the succession plan that we put in place continues that on and make sure that that purpose is put into effect and carries on once somebody has died. So ideally all the family would understand and have agreed to and and have contributed to what is our purpose of wealth and then what does that look like? How does that work when mum and dad have passed away and how do we then continue that for the subsequent generations? Now, I just want to work through a couple of scenarios here that we should be testing or preparing for those curveballs of life. We've discussed briefly the obvious death. What about the situation of divorce and so forth? What are some of those scenarios briefly that we should be preparing for? Yeah, so it's divorce or even, you know, just separation. If people aren't married, but they are living in a de facto relationship, it won't be a divorce, but it will be a separation. But from a legal perspective, the effect is pretty much the same. And it can be a very quick way to destroy capital and to destroy wealth. And particularly if there's an argument between spouses over the division of of assets and wealth, and also over other things like children and care of the children as well. The types of conversations we have are about planning for the worst, but of course, hoping for the best. What we recommend is the belt and braces approach. It's getting a what used to be called a prenup, and it's probably what most people know it as, but these days we call it a, a binding financial agreement. Well, that sounds much scarier than prenup. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> I love you dearly. Please sign this binding financial agreement before we can get to the altar. Yeah, I want to spend the rest of my life with you and live happily ever after, but please sign this before we get married. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I think some trying and difficult conversations are had around this area. But there's two ways to look at it. There's the where one party has more wealth than the other, which is where you typically find these sorts of you know, agreements being put in place. The other way to look at it is that 
It's about ensuring that perhaps the person that didn't come to the relationship with as much wealth, that if the relationship doesn't survive, and particularly if there are children involved, that that person is not going to be cast out into the cold. On the one hand, the Belt and Braces approach in this respect is to have that binding financial agreement in place. And the other thing we like to see is, particularly when you're talking about an inheritance coming through, is the use of a testamentary trust where assets are held in that trust structure rather than being held personally by an individual. You mentioned possibility of cognitive decline. What about situations where you may be incapacitated or unable to act on your own behalf? Things like living wills or advanced care directives? An advanced healthcare directive is really quite a practical document. It's actually a document you would, rather than sitting down with a lawyer and working through and completing and signing, it's actually one you'd most likely do with your doctor. It goes through a number of different scenarios and gives you the opportunity to document your wishes around things like end-of-life care, being on life support and whether that's withdrawn, if treatment continues for terminal illnesses and things like that. A comprehensive plan here would look like having a medical power of attorney in place where you've nominated who the person is who would make medical decisions for you if you're incapacitated and separate to that an advanced healthcare directive or which can either be binding or non-binding, it's up to you, where you go into more detail and you give an indication of your wishes, the decisions that you would like your medical attorney to make for you if they ever have to act. What I find in practice is that clients are very comfortable and won't give too much thought to the medical power of attorney aspect of it and thinking about who they would nominate to be that person to make decisions if they couldn't. But very few of them, I think, take that extra step and put in place the advanced healthcare directive or even just document their wishes around medical treatment. That aspect is just so important. I've always wondered this. When you talked about the people that make decisions on your behalf, every will needs an executor. How do you figure out who's best in this situation? Is there like a personality or a trust test (laughs) for the person that you select? should be a job description and an interview process Um, because it is a bit like that. It is about matching skills, experience, personality type with what's required in a particular role. First of all, as an executor, you don't need to be an expert necessarily in legal matters or tax matters, financial matters. What you need to be is a good decision maker, a good decision maker that can act independently and impartially. Often, the executor will also be a beneficiary of an estate. Bit of a conflict there as well, right? There can be. Where things are sort of quite non-controversial, perhaps not so much, but where you may have an executor who's got an interest in and a greater interest in an asset or of the estate or an outcome of the estate, then yes, they may be conflicted. People can be very aware of a conflict of interest and understand what it means. But being able to identify when they themselves have a conflicted position and that the actions they're taking are suffering because of that conflict, there's not always that same level of awareness around that. Yeah, the blind spots that we all need to be aware of. 
Eliza, a lot of your work deals with legal and tax technicalities, but there must be substantial emotion attached to all of this. You've described it. How do you navigate this with your clients? You've got to give time for people to experience those emotions. And that could be that giving some time and distance when a client has passed away time for the family to take a breath and to celebrate the life of the person and be together as a family and support each other through that process. In the meetings that we have and the correspondence that we have and the dealings that we have with the family, it's acknowledging the grief and the sadness that comes about when this happens. Probably about six months ago, was with some clients who, who their mother passed 18 months ago and we were finishing up a meeting and talking about the legal, the financial, how the estate was going in terms of its administration and doing all sorts of boring things like signing forms and paying tax. And one of them actually brought up on her computer screen the photo montage, the video montage that they had at mum's funeral. And they, she said, oh, you never got to meet mum, but thought you might be interested in this. And so we sat there for five minutes and, and watched fabulous, fabulous tribute to her and so lovely to watch. And you know, I think those things are important that you share and that you experience with families as they're going through this process because for them it's not just about legal things, it's not just about wealth, it's not just about signing forms and transferring assets. It's that they've lost a very special family member and that grief is an emotion is tied up in every aspect of the estate administration. Any strategies you have for clients who are clouded by emotion in their judgments? It's about education and making sure that if people do have a decision-making role, that they understand what their duties are, what job it is that they're there to do, and they understand the implications of that. I think as well, this is where being the trusted advisor and, and in some cases being an independent voice of reason where you can have a, whether it's a quiet word to somebody or play devil's advocate and perhaps point out the contrary view to somebody, helping them with just perhaps a bit more awareness of the perception of their decisions or how other people might feel about what they think is a really simple decision. It's a role that we often play here at Mutual Trust of being that independent advisor around the table who can ask the tough questions, who can challenge people in their thinking and play that devil's advocate role to help perhaps people see things uh, in a different way. And as the University of Adelaide Research on Family Enterprises noted, these are all hard conversations. They're existential. There's the fear of loss of control, concerns mm -hmm. about the future and so forth. How do you get someone to listen and to act? And how do you nudge those clients who have their head in the sand? We tell stories about what can go wrong so we can explain the consequences of not dealing with these issues when you can. One that often motivates people is if you don't go through this exercise now and, and spend some money getting a proper plan in place, the risk is your estate could end up in years of litigation and hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal fees to lawyers. That's often quite a good motivator and people are horrified at the thought of their estate being whittled away by lawyers and accountants' fees and that understanding that there is a, there's a true cost to not doing things properly. What does good governance look like in these situations to help document the processes and ensure you've got those plans happening in, in, into the future? 
you want to make sure that there is good governance in place while you're alive. So you're starting from a really strong and solid place. That will mean having the right people in the right roles making decisions. Then there's a transition of control at some point, and that might look like bringing children in to decision-making roles during a lifetime at an appropriate time for those children, usually when they've got through their 20s, sort of established in their career and family uh, and ready to take on that additional responsibility alongside mum and dad and, and the siblings as well. And so good governance in that respect looks like kids when they're capable and in the right stage of life taking on those decision-making responsibilities but also a really clear idea about how a family makes decisions together. And so that might look like a a family constitution or just an agreed process around how decisions are made, what the voting rights are, what you do if you can't reach the majority, what information is required to make decisions. There's lots of different components to it. In conversations with clients, there's often a comment, oh, that feels like a business, that feels like a corporate. And there is an element to that where we're trying to add the professional governance to family decisions in recognition of the wealth that they're managing and that it does need that level of professionalism that you won't get if all you're doing is discussing these things over dinner on a Sunday night around (laughs) around the dinner table. And a family constitution, is that part of the process? It is. That's just basically documenting what the agreed process is and providing clarity So people know what to expect if they have a decision-making role. They know what their duties are. They know how they'll deal with all the other decision-makers. And also importantly, what happens if there's disagreement or a decision can't be made. And from a succession perspective, we just then, we want to make sure that governance plan won't be disrupted by the death or incapacity of any one of those decision-makers. So for instance, We've got a family who have a really a really significant business that dad runs with his brother. The governance plan at the business level needs to carry through essentially the succession plans of both branches of the family so that good governance isn't disrupted by somebody not having the right will in place. Gosh, and what about outside members of the family coming in as well? That would add a whole other complexity, I'd imagine. Yeah, it does. It does. And the influence of others as happens and also the influence that advisors can have. And that's where having you know, very clear roles and responsibilities for everybody is, is really important. So how often should I be reviewing this? Whenever something significant changes in your life. So whether that be from a financial perspective Often uh, that could be an inheritance, that could be the sale of a business, a major liquidity event, lottery for any, <laughs> you know, for those of us lucky to ever win the lottery, that would be a, a trigger point or any other significant life events with our clients. It's an annual thing just to remind people of what's in there, how it all works and testing. Is this still what you want? It's a bit like a medical checkup. It is. It is. It sort of becomes a bit of a compliance piece. You know, you do your tax every year and you should pull your will out and have a look at that as well. If you're the one doing the succession planning, how confident can you be that your values and wishes will be honoured? If you are simply relying on the will to do that, then you probably shouldn't be very confident at all. 
there is only so much that a legal document like that can do to uphold those values and wishes. What you really need is a common understanding within the family and agreement around what are our values and wishes, open communication throughout your lifetime. Your children shouldn't find out about that only after you've died. Without that communication and that common understanding, as I said, if you're just relying on the will, I don't think you'd be very confident that it would. What about if you're a family member trying to get other members to action what they need to be doing? Look, that can be really challenging if people are not ready to have those conversations themselves. It's where you want to leverage your advisor and raise it through that forum if you can. You can't force somebody to have that conversation and if they really don't want to, you don't want to force them to. But the approach should be, let's have an open conversation about what it is you want me to do. What are your expectations? What are you trying to achieve with this? What does best practice look like? And what is success at succession planning? What's the best thing you've seen? Oh, the best thing is when you can sit down with a family when that awful event happens. There's no surprises. They know exactly what's going to happen and how it's all going to work. And they've got a really clear idea about what mum or dad or whoever else, whoever it may be, what they wanted and are really dedicated to making sure that that happens. And what's that look like and feel like when you're with those families in that conversation? That's a very different thing. Well, it's just that it's not a new conversation. That's what it feels like. It feels like we've been having this conversation since before the person passed away because there has been that open communication. So it's just a continuation of that. You're not discussing these things for the first time with people. And for us as advisors, we spend a lot of time and effort making sure that once we've put in place a plan for a client, that we are then speaking to the next generation about what that looks like and what they can expect. And we start to educate them about what is an executor and what is a testamentary trust and how does this all work? And that's the beginning of the conversation. While mum and dad are still here, that's the beginning of the conversation. And then when the time comes, it's just a continuation of that. It's, you know, we've talked about this before. You know what's going to happen. This is what we now do to give effect to that. We've talked of the legal and tax technicalities and the sway of emotion. In an earlier chat with Jay Hughes, he said what's often overlooked in succession planning is the leadership piece, which is preparing family and heirs to step up and informing them on that leadership piece. How does that resonate with your experiences? It's really important. And we see that give an effect to when the next generation are brought into decision-making positions during the lifetime. So when is the right time for that will be different between families. Sort of that next generation need to be ready. And that's where that education piece is so important. And it needs to be in the right kind of role for them. So maybe you start your career, you don't go straight to CEO, you start you start a junior position and you work your way through. So you think of a similar thing in a in a family situation. But that opportunity to learn and grow alongside mum and dad. It's like having your training wheels on. You can do it in a safe and protected environment, learning as you go. And then when that event comes where it is just the next generation making those decisions, they're well equipped. And I tell you what, again, what does what does bad look like in this space? I've sat across the table from beneficiaries who 
have never been responsible for managing any significant wealth before without having a decision-making role. They've never had that responsibility. And then we're talking about the estate administration and going through, well, you're now responsible for this and you're now responsible for that. These are the things you need to think of. And it can be a bit overwhelming for those individuals where you know, you're suffering grief and going through a really difficult time in your life. Plus, there's all these responsibilities and jobs that you have to do that you're not experienced with, you don't know, you don't understand. And that's a really unsettling place to be for somebody. Not to mention the risk in terms of the assets of the family in the, in the future. Start early, plan often, and bring people in gradually and bring them in early and educate be transparent, tell them what's going on, tell them what the plan is. And then over time, give them responsibility, get them involved in making decisions and teach them how to do what you do, which is managing your wealth. Well, that's the start of a really good conversation around succession planning. Eliza Newson, Director of Trustee Services at Mutual Trust, thank you. It's a great comfort to have all your experience in this conversation today. Thanks very much. Thanks, Narelle. Well, that's more than I thought I'd ever learn about the intricacies of succession planning. I'm off to sort my estate and audition for an executor right now. If this conversation has sparked more questions and you'd like more information on succession planning, or you want to know more about the groundbreaking research Why the Modern Family Office Matters, head to mutualtrust.com.au or email us purposeofwealth at mutualtrust.com.au. That's it for the Purpose of Wealth podcast in 2023. There'll be plenty more to come next year. I'm Narelle Hooper. I'll catch you next time.